reasons that we're all here today is because we have been created for worship. Both in the general sense, in our daily lives, we're to worship, and in the very specific sense of being gathered together as God's people to worship. And what we're going to do today is we're going to be looking at God's pattern of worship that he first set out in Genesis chapter 3. And so I'm going to read this, and I'm going to do it with vigor so that we keep our attention. And I know it's a passage that you've heard many, many times, right? But I want you to listen to it. I want you to hear God's interaction with the first congregation. The first pastor is Adam. The first church is Eve. And God shows up, and he speaks. So as we hear God's word, let us listen. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were made, were opened, And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Then Yahweh God said to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. So Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, 
for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, Yahweh God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed the cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, thank you for calling us to your presence to worship you. We rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins and in your praise for bringing us into your presence and giving us the good gifts of you and your word. Please allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Our God is a God who draws near. And there are two kinds of God's presence. There is God's omnipresence. That is, he's everywhere, children. Like we see in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 7, where it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If it, I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The omnipresence of God is simply the fact that no matter where we go, God is already there. It is fascinating because we don't live that way. Children, listen up. Every day we get up and we live as though God cannot see us. But can he see you? He does see us. And just like Adam and Eve, we cannot cover ourselves. Remember what happened in that story? They tried to hide themselves, to cover themselves. Adults, how many times have we lived in this very same way? You know, it's interesting, we see that at verse 15 of Psalm 139 goes on to remind us this, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. God himself has made us and has seen us from the very beginning of our lives, from our very conception. God has seen us, he has made us, he has formed us. And yet, we continue to act as if God is not everywhere seeing us all of the time. We need to live in the understanding of the psalmist, who understands this. Again, Psalm 139, verse 23, where he says to the psalmist, after acknowledging that he is, that is God, is everywhere and can see everything and has been with him since the very moments of his conception, he says this in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, 
and know my anxieties. That is, those disquieting thoughts, knowing that we are naked and uncovered before him. He goes on in verse 24 and says this, And see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead, lead me in the way of understanding. Excuse me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, I, I want to say this to you. How many of us get up every day and say to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, he already knows my heart. He knows your heart. What we are saying is, God, Search me, not so that I can say, oh, look how good I am, but it is to expose the sin that I am hoarding in my life. Because when we're alone, we get those disquieting thoughts, don't we? What do we always try to do? We try to find ways to cover up our sin, our guilt. We do, some for some, it's working all the time. For others, it's using drugs and alcohol. For others, it's finding ways to blame and hold on to bitterness. We find some mission with which to cover ourselves up. We need to ask God to show us the wickedness that is in me so that he can lead us in the way of everlasting. In humility, with a repentant heart, we are to ask God to expose our wickedness and lead us to his way of unending future, to his specific presence. Not just the general presence that he's everywhere, but so that we may enter into the everlasting life in his presence, where heaven and earth are together. But even, people of God hear this, when we come together, as the people of God, and we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He forgives us. And we, as His people, ascend into His specific presence. Now, you can't see it. You look around, you see these banners, you see these walls. You know, you see those cars out in the parking lot. But we are in the presence of God, His specific presence. We also, as we consider what it means to be God's specific presence, that He calls us. He speaks to us. Starting in Genesis 3, we see that God calls His people to rest and rejoice in the good gifts that He gives and in fellowship with Him. This gratitude and resting in His peace strengthens us to the call to glorify our God in taking the very things that He has given us dominion over so that our kingdom of responsibilities reflect heaven. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. Now all of you, well, hopefully most of you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number one. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. A lot of times we say that and we go, well, that's interesting. That's kind of mystical and far away. 
to glorify God and enjoy Him. God in worship gives us good gifts of forgiveness, His Word, His table of peace, all for the fact that we can go out, be commissioned, and bring glory to Him and take all that He has given us and for us to make it reflect heaven. Let's consider a few words from the scriptures, Psalm 86.9 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and glorify your name. So all nations are called, all peoples are called to glorify God's name. Isaiah 60, beginning of verse 21, says also, Your people shall be righteous, and they shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that it may be glorified. So as God brings blessing to us, He plants us, He causes us to grow. It's so that He will be glorified. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We were bought with a price. God sent His Son. He died on the cross for us. That was the price. Therefore, we are to glorify Him, not just in our spirit in some internal way, but in a public way with our bodies. That is all that we do. In Psalm 144, verse 15, it says, Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is Yahweh. So we go from bringing God glory to having happiness because we have the gratitude towards God for all of His good gifts. And so we are truly happy. And of course, we see in Revelation 21, verse 3, this about everlasting communion with God. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So we, are, we see here clearly that we are to glorify God. And there are good gifts that he gives us now. And then the completion of all things, good gifts in their fullness. In our passage, we see that God called worship on the very first Sabbath. What do we see in verse 8 of chapter 3? It says this, And they, that's Adam and Eve, and of course the serpent, heard the sound of God. That is the voice of God. The thunderings of God. And what was he doing? So they heard his voice calling, and God is walking. He is coming to them in the garden and in the cool of the day. And you know what? They knew that they had sinned against God, and they hid themselves and tried to cover up their sin. Then Yahweh God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So God comes and he calls Adam and Eve. Now the truth is, God knew where they were. Their best efforts of trying to cover up and be hidden and hide what they do wrong, or what they had done wrong, 
wasn't working. But what was he doing? Why did he call and said, where are you? You see, God was calling them to to his presence. And and just I'm going to pause right there and say, listen, God through his elders calls his people at a specific time and place to gather together. We're his representatives. So whenever your elders, if you're visiting from another church, when your elders say this is the time that you worship, show up. Show up. Be on time. And here it says that they that he called them. And so what happened? You see, because listen, because we fall into this same trap ourselves. So Adam said to him, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sometimes we show up to church and we have committed grave sin against God. You see, we are not to respond to God's call to come before him by hiding or attempting to dodge coming to the Lord's day worship. So that's the first thing. When God calls, or God's representatives, the elders say, this is the time we're going to worship God. Come. Don't figure out some reason. I'm tired. I stayed up too late. I did this. I did that. Or I'd rather out be doing something else. Don't do that. But then you could fall into the second trap, and that is you could show up acting like I'm going to hide and cover my sin. Of course, God says, who told you that you were naked? And then he asks him, have you eaten from the tree which I have commanded that you should not eat? Now listen, God knows the heart of man. That's Psalm 44. God knew what Adam and Eve had done. So why is he asking this question? He's asking this question because he is calling for their confession of their sin. God said to him, who told you that you were uncovered and exposed, that is naked, before me? And what was uncovered? Their sin? Their hearts? Have you disobeyed me in this specific way? That's what God is asking. God was asking Adam to confess his guilt. But what does Adam do? He doesn't confess. He doesn't admit his wrongdoing. Instead, what does he do? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Adam goes right to blaming others for his sin. First, he blames God for the good gift that God had given him. God gives him a wife. He was a good wife. And here we see the first thing he does is he says, God, it's the gift you gave me, that good wife. Instead of being grateful for God's gift, Adam carelessly tosses God's gift into God's face as the reason for his sin. Adam doesn't confess his sin. Children, listen up. Are you hearing me? Adam lies. Instead of confessing his sin, when when God himself comes and says, what did you do? He tells lies even though God knows. Now, I keep picking on the children here just because I'm saying to you, I hear this all the time from parents. 
Children, are you looking? Look, look up this way. That they know their child has done something wrong, and when they ask them about it, they want to hide it. They don't want to tell the truth. Don't be like Adam. When you are asked, did you do something? Admit that you did it if you did it. Confess it. Confess it. Adults, we fall into the same trap as well. How often do we blame God and the good gifts He has given us as the reason for our sin? I lost my temper because my wife did this. I acted this way because my husband did that. My children were driving me crazy, so I did this. These are God's gifts. Do not throw them in His face and say, that's why I sin, because of the good gifts that He's given you. We do this with our vocation. I sin because my boss is doing this. I didn't act right. And we even do this with God's gift of your fellow saints. They offended me. They did this to me. Therefore, I'm going to sin and I'm going to hold on to it. Confess your sin. Don't blame God or the good gifts that he has given you. And teenagers, young people, college age, your parents, those are God's gifts to you too. And God doesn't say whether it's husband, wife, parents, Children, he doesn't say if everybody's acting right around you, right, then you can act right. But if they don't act right, well, you have to act, you, you have permission to act any way you want. No, that's wrong. God says, live right, obey his word. We, like Adam, kid ourselves all the time. We really, it's not even ourselves, we actually deceive ourselves when we act like God doesn't know our hearts. And we are very, very foolish when we don't repent. We are asking God to bring judgment upon us. And of course, God doesn't leave it just with Adam. He does turn to Eve and says, What is this you have done? And the woman says, A serpent deceived me and ate. Listen, Eve here is truthful. She was deceived, and then she ate. And her husband was there and did not do the three things that God gave him to do. He was called to protect her. He was called to teach her. And he was called to feed her. These were his duties before God. Eve had every reason to blame Adam, but instead she confessed her sin. But her head, Adam, in his rebellious state, brought her down as well. When we are in covenant with others, our sin always affects others. And it does so in drastic and sometimes dreadful ways. So God doesn't just leave them after he calls them and they don't repent. He doesn't leave them in that state, but he begins a sermon of both judgment and hope. It says this in verse 14, So Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you were cursed more than all the cattle. And he goes on and says that he's going to eat dust. And that he, in verse 15, says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. So right there, he makes a promise. Judgment on the serpent and a place of hope. And of course, he says to the woman that he's going to greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. And talks about relationships with children and the difficulties there and the complexities of loving tyrants. You ever wonder why abused women stay with their abusers? It's complicated. But part of it is because their hearts are there. They're in conflict to a tyrant. That rule over him, that's not ruling in a positive way. That's ruling in a bad way. There are other scriptures that support men being the heads of their households and how to live and lead rightly. But this is complicated. And then it says to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you. And I want to pause right there. The preacher, Adam, who's supposed to protect, teach, and feed, what does he do? Now part of it is, for his own preservation, he does this. Let me see what happens. If Eve drops dead, well, I know we shouldn't do that. But, She's going to do it because I really want to do it. So if my congregation thinks that a certain kind of sin is okay, I'm going to wait and see what happens. And if it doesn't bring destruction right now, I'm going to support that. Does that sound like anything you've looked around and seen lately? Now listen, i got to tell you, it's a dreadful thing to stand in this pulpit and preach. Because I know that I'm called, your elders here are called, to protect, teach, and feed you. And here, we want to be obedient to God's word and not to, well, what, 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 if I say this, is this going to bother somebody in the congregation? We have to be faithful to teach and preach God's word. And because of this, he says, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And I'm going to pause right there. Think about this. What was the serpent cursed to eat? Dust. Man is made out of dust and going to return to dust. Satan wants to eat you up and destroy you. He's a man eater. But in God's good providence and deliverance for you and I, through the work of Jesus Christ, we are set free from the bondage of sin. And he can roar like a lion, but he has no teeth with which to devour God's people. We see this as well where it says Adam called his, name, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And so Adam, also for Adam and his wife, Yahweh God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. And again, I want you to see the liturgical thing that's going on here. This first service. God brings judgment to the serpent and he makes the first promise of Satan's defeat. And in this, God is working out his plan to reconcile men to his face-to-face specific presence. God then places discipline 
upon both Adam and Eve, curses and relationships and vocations. God sets creation against Adam to cause him to remember his sin and his need of salvation and restoration to the face of God. Then God makes the first sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin by killing an animal to cover Adam and Eve's exposed sin and nakedness. Now in this, we need to think about this. Worship is our amen. That is, so be it, response to God for his good gifts to us. We can see even in this first Sabbath day, worship, that God comes and calls his people, and they are to respond to what God is saying. But when God comes to the garden, instead of joyfully being able to come into the presence of their father and give thanks for all of God's gifts of instruction, food, rest, and fellowship with God Almighty, Adam and Eve are hiding from God in their sin. God speaks directly to them, and they respond in their sinful, exposed state. They showed up to church that morning and started the conversation, that is, God did, with his people. And what happened? Adam refused to confess his sin. There is no confession of sin for Adam here, which means he is in a state to be excommunicated, to be separated from the specific purpose or presence of God. Then God's words, because they're not responding with confession and repentance, he preaches a sermon of hope and restoration, but it includes words of judgment for their sin. And even in this, God desires for mankind to be restored to his fellowship and speaks this hope and promise in the garden. The design and pattern of worship is for us to respond to God. We are to declare joyfully the amen. That is, in all five parts of worship. And we'll be looking at those in more detail in the coming weeks. God calls us. And we come and we verbally respond with affirming words and glorified speech. That is, singing. We should respond to the call, the confession, the ascension. And in the ascension time where we go up into his presence, this is where he gives us wisdom and judgment from his word. And then we are to respond to his meal of peace and respond to his commission to go out and glorify the world by transforming it. Now it's very important that we recognize that in all of the old covenant worship is conducted in exile. In verse 22, it says, Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put his hand and take also to the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and placed a cherubim at the east end of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Until Christ comes, all worship of God is done in exile of God's presence. First, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. God, for our safety, kept himself at a distance. And when God began the process of reconciliation of men, it started with degrees of separation. We see this 
with both Jews and Gentiles, Levites and Israelites, priests and Levites. And the final separation was a single high priest. Even in the architecture of the tabernacle and the temple, the pattern of separation is obvious. From the farthest distance, you have the four corners of the world. And then you have the land of Israel. And then you have the courtyard of the temple and tabernacle. And then the most holy place. And then the holy of holies. So all the degrees of separation are done to keep us from the very specific presence that came down to man. And only once a year could one man go into the Holy of Holies to God's presence to make atonement for sin. Now the good news is God did not leave us in our exiled state. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 14 says this, For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity or this separation. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. And through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we can now go confess our sins, and enter into the presence of God. At Christ's atoning death, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies of men was torn in two, Luke 23. Because of the work of Jesus, we no longer worship in exile. We respond to God's call, and we come before Him, and we confess our sin. And we ascend into the presence of God, and are brought to His table of peace, before he commissions us out to proclaim his glory by glorifying the world through dominion. We worship and receive God's gifts so that we can make the earth reflect heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we see in Jesus' model prayer this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This portion here that says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is both a prayer and an action item for us. We are tasked from creation to heavenize earth. We are God's agent of glorification in this world. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. We are made in the image of God. We are transformed by God from glory to glory. This can seem, again, very far away and foggy. But we are called in very practical ways to worship God by living our lives in this world and by the power of the Spirit to reorganize this world, that is to say, 
our realms of dominion to reflect heaven. So for what, what, what I'm trying to say here is this. God's word is teaching us that we are to go out after we come before in his specific presence and we glorify him and are reconciled to him and he gives us all these good gifts. We're then to go out. We ask him, we pray to him and ask him, okay, to uh, help us in these tasks. But, you know, God has given everyone in this room a kingdom, a place where you have dominion over. It starts with yourself. And then what else has God given you? Has he given you a spouse, children, a job, property, belongings, a family outside of your specific family, the people of God? Are you taking all of these things and trying to walk in obedience to his word and make it reflect the priorities of heaven? Are you glorifying the dominion, the kingdom God has given you in this way? In every part? Can you imagine if just 50% of the church did this? What would happen? The world would be transformed. Romans 12.1 tells us this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what? What is good and acceptable and what else? And the perfect will of God. So we take our bodies, we live our life in this world, and we take the good gifts God has given us in his specific presence, and we go out and glorify God out in the world. And this brings God's will to bear in this world. We need to be thinking this through and recognizing that we need to both glorify God and receive his blessings as his people. This passage in Romans 12 tells us that when we are conformed to Christ by the renewing of our minds, by the word, that we will prove what is good and acceptable, his perfect will. You, by your actions, prove God's word to be true, and God's heavenly will will be done here on earth. He's glorified. And we know that when he is glorified, people look at the good works, the things we're doing faithfully before him, that they will what? Look at us and say, what a great person you are? No, God's word tells us, in fact, that they too will glorify our Father in heaven. Here today, we need to remember that we have been created to worship and to glorify God in specific Lord's Day worship so that he may forgive our sins and give us the good gifts of his word and feed us at his table of peace, that he may send us out to do his will and reorganize what God has given us dominion over to reflect heaven here on earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all the good gifts you've already given us this day. We thank you for bringing us out of exile so that we may worship before you, no longer separated from you. We ask that you help us by your grace and mercy to live our lives to bring glory to your name in all that you have given us dominion over. We ask all of this 
for your Son's sake, Jesus Christ, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.